0: Uh, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll get started. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together. Thank you for your word. It's just, it's just nice just to hear it read uh, as we think about our world, uh, we think about our country, we think about just all the noise out there. It's just nice to be quiet and just hear uh, your word read uh, to us. And um, we thank you for it. Uh, we, we, we're so grateful to have the Bible in our hands. We're grateful for the opportunity to read it publicly. We're thankful that we can sit down and, and, and hear and study it together uh, and the freedom we have in that. I pray, God, you would um, help us, God, as we study this, that, Lord, we're not looking for little tidbits here or there, a little information um, to help us out along the way, God. We're looking for Jesus, and we want to see him and pray that, God, as we study this passage together, we would see uh, the work of Christ and be motivated by that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, um Jetson, you may have heard of him before, uh, was actually known as most likely the first uh, American missionary. Uh, Many historians considered him the best-known and most highly respected national hero of the 18th century. Uh, It was common during that time period in the 1700s to to read of his exploits in newspapers all across the country as he served in the country. It was called Burma. It's modern-day Myanmar. It's between China and India if you look on a map. Uh, he expanded what would be considered evangelistic traditions. He pushed boundaries of like what it means to go reach people and the sacrifices. And many of even I would say even our very own sent missionaries and all sent missionaries from America really have their have things to give to him. He was the first one to kind of break out and to really push the boundaries of reaching unreached peoples uh, in the world. Uh, but being on mission was anything but easy for him. Uh, if you know anything about him, he started his journey off by setting sail. Uh, for Burma with his new wife, as well as uh, another young couple in the early 1800s. Before they ever reached uh, the mission field, the son, uh, the only son there, and the wife of his mission partner died on the, on the way over, as well as his own wife, Anne, gave birth to their first child on the way over and was stillborn. When they arrived, they labored just to understand the language, years, just to try to understand uh, the language of the Burmese there uh, over the next couple of years, His wife had their second son, uh, who died within a month of of a fever, and it took six years plus for finally someone to respond to the gospel there. It took them six years, even after they learned the language, to to see someone come to know Christ during that time. Within five years after that, it it got a little harder for him, actually. Uh, they, They found themselves caught in the middle of a war. There was a war that broke out during this time between Burma and Britain. And, uh, and where Judson was seized and thrown into a death camp, is what they called it, on suspicion that he was being a spy. They thought he was a spy for Britain. Uh, he was starved. He was tortured there for, for over a year. and it was only because of the constant interventions uh, and pleadings of his wife Anne that, uh, who, who had get, by that time, during that time in prison, gave birth to their third child um, that was able to actually get food to him uh, and have him survive. Within a year after his release. His wife, Anne then died as well as their child died as well. So it was just one thing after another for him, uh, and yet he continued on. He endured. He kept, he kept fighting. He kept pursuing Christ. He kept striving to make the gospel known in that country. And because of that, despite the hardship, the result today is that nearly there are nearly 4,000 churches with over half a million followers of Jesus in the heart of what is today the heart of Buddhist Myanmar today. He knew. Uh, he knew this. He knew it would be hard. Matter of fact, we have, uh, uh, if you read his biography, or if you read, actually, there's one called The Three Jutsons." It's his, his three wives. Now, it sounds weird. It's, we're not Mormon here. But um, it was like, it was, he was, uh, it, the, after his first wife died, he remarried, and then she died, and then he remarried a third time. And so you can read that book called Three Jetsons. It's really, really fantastic. But um, in that biography, we actually have a letter in there that he sent uh, to Anne, his first wife's uh, dad asking uh, for, for her hand in marriage. And, and here's how he described it. Now, this is, this is hard to read as a, as a father of teenage daughters here. I'm like, I don't know if I could, uh, could say yes to this. But here's what he said. Here's what he said to his, his, uh, her dad. He said, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness? Brighten with the acclamations of praise, which shall resound to her Savior from people saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Imagine as a dad getting that letter, right? That's tough. And then you know, what the dad said, and "Dad said, yeah, it was hard for him, obviously, too." And he actually is true; he would never see his daughter um, again, and would lose her life, as I mentioned earlier, uh, serving the broken, striving to see people come to know. Jesus, And while the results of her life personally and his life personally may not be our results of following Jesus, the paths are the same, though, okay? The same path that we're on. Understand that when Jesus calls someone to himself, he subsequently sends them out, okay? Uh, this is, uh, there's very little time to sit, which is the path of, unfortunately many Christians take these days. It's as if the belief of many today who claim to follow Jesus is that Jesus calls people to himself, to kind of take up space in a, in a building somewhere, right? Or to use their God-given time and talent and treasure to kind of just pad their lives, to strive for safety at all costs, to keep themselves a, a comfortable distance, right, from the lost and the broken and the hurting, right? That's kind of the, that seems to be the pattern today. I, I thank God, and I've told you my story many times, I praise God that that. Christians didn't keep their distance from me. And I can tell you one thing, I wasn't easy to be around, okay? As an 18-year-old lost kid, I was angry at the world and about everybody else and looking for a fight, right? That was always me. And yet people, continue, Christians continue to love me, continue to pursue me, continue to, to look after me and continue to point me to Jesus. And I'm here today because Christians didn't keep their distance, okay? They didn't keep the six feet roll, right? They kept coming, right? They kept coming after me. And that's what, that's what Jesus calls us to do. As we read this section of Matthew ten, uh, it's a, it's really a, what we read here seems to be a far cry from modern American at least Christianity. And what we what we find in this text is what it looks like to follow Jesus on mission. What it looks like is, they will say at the end of this gospel, to go and make disciples. Jesus has in our previous chapter we saw last week has has called for prayer for more laborers to be sent into the harvest field. Right, that's what we ended last week. And in many ways, Jesus answers his own prayer, okay? He he grabs 12 disciples and he sends them out together, right? They move out together. And we're going to find, as we look at this, these will be the points we look at this morning, we're going to look at what mission involves and what it requires. And uh, And in that, we find our mission and purpose as a church. And we didn't know that mission requires four things, community, service, commitment, and hope. Okay, number one, mission requires community. Uh, first four verses you see read there, you can look back at your text, you'll see the names of these 12 disciples, or 12 of them. Uh, he probably had, by the way, Jesus didn't have just 12 people following him around. If you read the gospel, sometimes you think, uh, if you're not, maybe you're super familiar with the Bible, you think it's like... Just 12 people following him around like a little band. It was hundreds of followers of, of Jesus around. There was also uh, men and women. And Luke 8 even tells us a lot of women that were there too. And so it was a large group. But out of that group of people, possibly hundreds, he chose 12. They came to be known as apostles. Maybe a word you've heard before. A word means sent ones. Their, their role was to be sent out. Okay, And they would be sent out together. Jesus pulls them in, calls them to himself, Tells him to pull up anchor, and he sets sail, right? And he sends them out, again, together. He doesn't send out individual. Notice in that text, he doesn't send them out individually. He sends them out as a group, together. They are a community on mission, okay? And I want you to notice a couple things about them. First of all, I want you to notice how ordinary they are. I always say, you, when you read the Bible, I look at it and say, okay, what does it not say? And it's interesting to me who's not part of the 12, right? There, there are no kings in this group, There's no political leaders in this group. There are no scholars in this group. There's not even soldiers in this group. Uh, These guys had no wealth. They had no academic achievements or degrees. They had no social positions. They didn't even have street cred, okay? (laughs) They had had nothing going for them in that way. They are ordinary men. They they would never stand out in a crowd. Also look at how diverse they are. For instance, let's take just two of them to understand this. First of all, there's one guy named Matthew. You'll notice that this is the Gospel of Matthew. He's the writer of this. He's one of those twelve people, and he was, as we saw last week, he was a what? He was a tax collector. It's okay. You can kind of keep you awake here. You know, talk back to me. It's a little bit. It's good. He was a tax collector, right? And we looked at last week. Tax collector wasn't, you know, very popular. Would, they were looked at as like snitches. They were the ones that kind of sold out their own people. They were the ones who worked for the Roman government and, 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 and stole really money from their own people, right? So no one liked them. That's why when Jesus was at that party with the tax collectors, the religious leaders were really upset. Like, how could you be even close to those guys? So that was Matthew. He worked for the government kind of thing. He was not liked by anyone. Another guy in this group, very interesting to me, is Simon. Uh, sometimes it depends on your translation. It may say that he was a a Canaanite, or it may say he was a zealot. Um, Zealot is important. You say, what's the big deal about him being a zealot? Well, let me tell you about what a zealot was for a minute so you understand this. Um, There were four parties of Jews, okay, four parties, four groups, okay? There was uh, Pharisees, there were Sadducees, there were guys called Essenes, you don't really see those in the Bible, but they were there, and zealots. Those were the four kind of you kind of broke into one of those parties, political parties, as it were, during that time. Well, this political party, the historians say that they, were, uh, they had an, in, quote, an invulnerable attachment to liberty, okay? They had the motto of, quote, God is our only ruler and Lord and refused to give any man the title king. Okay, they lived in Roman rule. <laughs> That was slightly a problem, okay, living in Roman rule, not doing that. Um, They also had a a major problem living under that rule. And as a result, they were prepared, if necessary, to to die uh, for their country, willing to see loved ones even uh, die in the struggle for freedom. These were very um, kind of hardened kind of guys. I imagine the Scots and Bravehearts, kind of what I imagine these guys being like. In many ways, the Zealots were, they were like stealthy assassins who were always, they were always, we would say, packing, or carrying maybe is the best way to, in L.A. we called it packing, here we call it carrying, okay? So they were carrying, that's the way you understand me, um, always had like cloaks, and, you know, on, and they had daggers inside their jackets, and this is kind of what they walked around with. And they kept these knives, looked for either, they would look for either Romans that so they could sneak up behind and stab, or anybody that worked for the Romans. Okay, let's go back. Who worked for the Romans? Matthew did, okay? So you got these two guys together in the same group. And the plain fact is that if Simon the Zealot had met Matthew the tax collector in any other place outside of the presence of Jesus, he probably would have stuck him with a dagger, right? So, I mean, you got Jesus transforming, obviously, these guys. They're now together in a group, not only together and following Jesus, but now he's gonna send them out together. These two guys are going out together. It's crazy. And so add to this mix... In this group, you got guys like Thomas. A lot of times he's known as the adjective doubting Thomas, right? If you remember him, the one after resurrection said, I ain't going to believe unless I see it myself, right? Eternal pessimist, I think Eeyore-ish for some reason is what I think of. And then you have on the other side of that, you got insert foot in mouth Peter, uh, the eternal misguided optimist, right? I think Tigger. I have Tigger and Eeyore in my mind here, you know? (laughs) You can kind of assign Winnie the Pooh characters to each of these disciples if you wanted to. Another one of my favorite groups is two brothers. They were called James and John. They had a nickname. If you guys remember, if you're familiar with the New Testament, maybe you know this, they were called the Sons of Thunder, which <laughs> I always think about being like a, a tag team duo on WrestleMania for some reason, like the Sons of Thunder, like Midnight Express. That's what I think of. Um, that dates me. If you don't know, yeah, never mind Midnight Express. Uh, they were, they were hot headed, right? They were always looking for a fight, right? When they went through Samaria and they went, Samaria wouldn't let them through, they go to Jesus and go, hey, Jesus, can we just call down fire on them and just smoke them, basically? Let's just kill them all. You know, it's like, okay, calm down. It's okay. We'll go around Samaria. You know, it's all right. Uh, you have um, Philip, whose name actually translated means lover of horses. I think it's interesting because I, think, I imagine this guy is the guy that, like, look, I don't want to be in a group. I just want to be out in my ranch, my horses, away from people. That's who I imagine him to kind of be like. You got John is called the disciple whom Jesus loved, which I imagine didn't go over well with the rest of the group. They probably were kind of jealous of that and, like, didn't like him that much in that way. Not forget, not forget the most infamous of this group was Judas. Judas, the one that was the most trusted one in the group. I'll tell you something. Uh, he, he's the one that held the money bags. He was the one who bezeled money out of that, even sold Jesus out for money at the end. This is, this is the disciples, okay? These, this is the 12 disciples. And it's, it's quite a ragtag group of people. But in many ways, it's exactly what the followers of Jesus look like, right? It's what the church looks like. Jesus chose this group 2,000 years ago To to start the gospel movement and to see the Roman the Roman culture, Roman Empire set aflame for the gospel. See people love, see people serve, see people come and know Christ. He continues to turn the world upside down with the same kinds of people today. So if you feel broken, if you feel washed up, if you feel too far gone, you you're in the right place. Okay. A lot of times people think of the church of like, okay, I don't have it together, so I need to wait, make, make sure I fix my life, make myself good, and then, then maybe I can breach that group. Okay? That's, that's not the church. Uh, as I've told you before, this isn't a country club, uh, this isn't a classroom, and this isn't a museum, right? This is a, this is a hospital of sinners, okay? We're all sick and broken here. So if it's you, welcome. Okay? That's all part of the group. Notice one more thing about this that I mentioned earlier, and it's really one of the most important parts I want you to see about them is again, they, they are together. They're called in together, they're sent out together. They are a community on mission, not individuals on mission. We think a lot of times of mission, evangelism, things like that as being individualistic, right? It's me and my kind of people around me, but it's really us together. Uh, if they would have gone out alone, it's quite possible they would have quit. It's quite possible they would have been very ineffective and probably died based on what we read uh, through the rest of this passage. Um, we need each other. That's why the church is a body of believers, right? It's a, it's a group of people. It's not a building, it's a group of people on mission together. It's not you and your buddy, it's us together. It's a group of diverse people who collectively show, proclaim, and serve the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. So the point is get, get connected, right? Start by, if you're new, start by coming to Jesus. That's the number one step, okay? Start by coming to Jesus, come to Him, come to know Him. Um, once you come and know him, get baptized, right? Join the church, be part of a group, get connected with people and start serving together and get out together, right? That's kind of the process. And if any of those steps you're stuck in, okay, let us help you. That's what we're as pastors. Like we can help you kind of get get through those steps, as it were, and to understand what those each mean. Um, and so we we understand whatever you do, don't just attend. Don't just attend a service. Don't just check off a box and think that's what it means to be a Christian. That might pass for American Christianity, but that's not biblical Christianity, okay? It's not checking off a box and attending a service. It's a group of people committed to one another, loving one another, and moving out together to serve, love, and proclaim uh, the gospel. Number two, mission requires service. Okay, now we get some of the detailed activity here. If you look down in verses 5 through 15, you'll find what they are to go do, Okay. And you'll find there's a a target group, I guess you'd say, a specific group of people. And it's really people who are, we would say, diseased, dying, despised, and dirty. That's kind of how you describe this group of people that they are to be reaching. Uh, You'll see them like raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons, right? Cleanse lepers. This is that group. This is the the group that the world ignores. this is the world this is those the world disregards the ones the world oppresses. This is the very people that Jesus sends us to, and it's these very people we are to serve and get this as we serve these people, those people, this this group of people, the ones who are outcast and oppressed in that way, as we serve those people, we actually are serving Jesus in the process. Did you know that? We'll, we get to Matthew 25. If you haven't read Matthew 25, when Jesus kind of makes this connection between people, us serving people, and Him, it's it's pretty strong, and we'll get there soon. But let me just give you a couple of proverbs that kind of just reflect this. Listen to this. Listen to a couple of these. Proverbs 14, 31. Whoever oppresses a poor man. Remember, I told you there's four categories of what we would call marginalized people in the Old Testament. There was the the orphan and the widow right? Um, no parents, um, and, you know, and, and the wife in that culture really wasn't able to work, and so she would be without, if the husband died, would be in, in dire straits. So you had the orphan, you had the widow, you had the poor, and the sojourner, okay? Those were the four, sojourner, kind of like without a home, okay? So that's that group. So you can insert any of them here. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker. He was generous to the needy, honors him, meaning the maker, okay? Uh, Proverbs 17, 5, whoever mocks the poor, insults his maker. Proverbs nineteen seventeen. Whoever whoever's generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Proverbs twenty one thirteen. whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be answered, right? I mean, it's a pretty strong connection there, like how you treat people and how you serve people and how you reach people, especially this category of people, um, the, the more God takes that very seriously, right? And notice that their ministry in the passage in Matthew 10, their ministry was about two things. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, and I'll keep bringing this up. I call it two wings of the plane of ministry of a church, right? There was preaching, there was word ministry, and there was what he calls healing or deed kind of ministry. Both are very important. There was a call to minister to people's bodies as well as to people's souls. It was about gospel proclamation and gospel neighboring, rescuing, restoring, mission, and mercy, evangelism and compassion, word and deed, grace and truth. Like the, these are two wings of the plane of the church. You've got to have both. You fly with one wing on a plane. Uh, some of you, I know, are pilots. You know that probably doesn't go well. You probably don't need to be a pilot to understand that. One plane, one wing on a plane is not going to go well, okay? You need both wings on the plane. And so the church, this means the church, is to be a group of people that, that move, right? The plane is meant to go. It's not there for decoration, to look at on the ground. It's meant to soar. It's meant to fly. It's meant to move, not be still, Again, yet so much of Christianity today is about sitting still, taking it in, right? It is in many ways devolved from a faith of movement, as you see in the Bible and New Testament, early church history, from a faith of, of movement to a faith of the classroom. And listen, I've told you, I'm pro-classroom. I'm a teacher, okay? So I like classroom. I'm not against classroom, not against education, not against studying the Bible. You know that. If you've been here long at all, we're very committed to that. It's called Parkside Bible Church for a reason, okay? We're very committed to the Bible and teaching the Bible. We have a lot of classes and things offered. We're going to still be pro that. That's good, but we have to pick up the other side. Uh, Jesus called uh, his people to follow him. He didn't call us to sit at his feet. There, there are moments of sitting at Jesus' feet. They're very important to that. Um, but the call for him, for his people, is always to say, "Hey, come, follow me." Instead, again, uh, the church, by and large, today, I would call it a kind of sit, you soak, and then you sour, right? What do you mean by that, Chris? We mean sour. Like you, you just take a lot of information, and then that's all you do. We just, and then we have all these arguments, right, of, about information. That becomes our kind of, we, they kind of get the sour attitude because we're not moving, we're not serving, we're not getting out there. And so the church by and large becomes like just kind of just bitter with each other and they fight. And if you're unfamiliar, if you're new to the church and you kind of look at it and you go like, yeah, that's, that's why I don't like coming to church or what I think about Christianity is that. Just people kind of just fighting with each other. And that's because again, we're not moving out. We have the infighting and squabbles over some of the most insignificant of things because we aren't moving. Uh, listen, it's easy Uh, in in our current moment of, you know, the COVID state that we are in, uh, to get nervous, to get fearful, even at times just get irritated, right? Um, It's easy to be uh, petrified at times, to be still and not move and just kind of stew and all of that, just be frustrated in general about the condition of society and the condition of, like, what we can and can't do and wearing masks or all that stuff, you know? It's easy to get just frustrated with that, and then you just Kind of take it out on each other, right? Kind of bite and devour each other is the way, the way Galatians speaks to that. And so we, we, this is what happens uh, to, to, to the church. It's easy to spend our days listening to this or that, right? Reading this or that, concern ourselves with maybe Christianity in America and what's going on with Christianity in America, and, and yet not concerned about what's going on in our front door, what's happening in our community, what's happening to our neighbor, whatever those, those people are in need that are right around us. Uh, We're quarreling over this political position or that social issue, right? All the while, we got no one we're caring for personally. No one reaching out for. But hey, well, let's have some debates. Let's argue over, over stuff. It's like, there should be people. Who are the people that you're reaching? Who are the people you're caring for? Who are the people in this category, especially, that you're looking out for? You know, sad result, again, is the church, the world sees the church as a joke. Sees the gospel as useless. Jesus is seen as a, Washed up has been whose followers just argue and fight with one another. We need to proclaim the gospel and truth, and we need to serve people at the same time. Grace and truth, both wings of the plane. Um, We need to have a vision for our world that involves not just just words, but deeds. Um, Paul Marshall, I thought it was interesting, a worldview, he put it this way, kind of a vision of understanding the world. He called it kind of a contrast between what we would call a Titanic worldview and a Noah's Ark worldview. I thought it was kind of interesting, Here's what he said. He said, it's as if the creation were the Titanic, creation being not just physical world, but people. And now that we've hit the iceberg of sin, there's nothing left for us to do but get ourselves into lifeboats. The ship is sinking rapidly. God has given up on it and is concerned only with the survival of his people. Any effort we make to salvage God's creation and people here amounts to rearranging the deck chairs. They say our, whole t- our sole task is to get into the lifeboats, keep them afloat, pluck drowning victims out of the water, and to sail on until we get to heaven where we'll all be well. But Noah's ark saved not only people, it preserved God's other creatures as well. The ark looked not to flee, but to return to the land and begin again. Once the flood subsided, everyone and everything was intended to return again to restore the earth. Point being, is looking at going like, okay, my, my, my job here is not to run away, Okay? That is the easy thing to do, right? Keep myself some, keep myself some distance from brokenness. Keep myself some safe and comfortable. And I don't want to even engage people that much. I'm just going to kind of stay in my, what I call my Christian ghetto, right? I'm just going to stay in that little bubble of mine and stay in it. But to isolate ourselves, to run away and criticize, to keep things like the gospel story, to keep things like our own resources, our own education, our own life experiences, and not invest those in the lives of others is an injustice issue, Instead of doing justly, as Micah would tell us, and loving mercy and walking humbly with our God, we instead do unjustly, hate mercy, and walk arrogantly with our God. We need to be serving people. We need to be giving of ourselves. We need to be proclaiming the gospel all at the same time. So who are you serving? Who is that person or those, or those people that you can list that you're looking out for as you're reaching? Number three, mission requires commitment. You feel all that was uncomfortable and gets more uncomfortable, so just, you know, stay with me. All right, so down to verse 16. Jesus talks about being sent as sheep among wolves. He talks about being dragged before governors and kings. He talks about being delivered over by your own family members uh, in this section. And so we see things like rejection, abandonment, hardship, and betrayal. And why does Jesus list all of that? I mean, it seems like you're one of the 12 disciples. You're probably like, um, okay, uh, can, I, can I get a rain check on this mission? <laughs> can I get a different mission? It's something different? This doesn't sound very fun. But Jesus was preparing them. He was giving them reality. And in many ways, preparing us for the fact that if we're going to be a community on mission, it is going to be hard. We need to have both feet in. We need to be, a, be committed to each other. None of this half-hearted stuff. None of this just taking up space stuff. None of this isolating ourselves stuff. We're talking about a commitment to walk together, serve together, be on mission together, which is gonna be hard. Because let's be honest. It's not just hard serving people. It's not just hard uh, to serve those who are difficult, we get on each other's nerves as well, okay? So it's hard, it's hard right? It's hard to be out together in that way. Just as consider the, the statement Jesus makes about being sheep amidst the wolves. He's, he's saying, I'm going to send you out as sheep to wolves, not like you may have a wolf come. It's like, no, I'm going to send you actually to where wolves are. And, and that's interesting, right? The only defense mechanism that sheep have is basically the ability to run, Let's just say they won't be mistaken for a track athlete, okay? They're not very fast. And uh, so pretty much the most dangerous thing sheep could do is to wander into a pack of wolves. Yet Jesus says this is what his followers are to do. It's precisely where they are to go. We often think, this is a a, a different kind of Christianity than what we uh, think of a lot of times, we often think that if something's not safe, it must not be of God, right? If it's dangerous, risky, may cause harm, we must not be in God's will. But Jesus tells us that to get on mission without reservation or hesitation, despite the dangers, despite the sufferings that may come, is what he's calling us to. The church has always been a suffering church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who died under Hitler's reign as a pastor in Germany, he called suffering quote, the badge of true discipleship. Like This is what it means to follow Jesus. It's all part of it. Martin Luther, back in the 16th century, reckoned suffering among the marks of a true church. What a church is, the early church knew this, right? That we've, I've told you the history of the early church before, the first kind of 100, 300, 400 years after the Bible was completed. Being a Christian affected their work. It affected their social life. It affected their home life. They were, I mean, this is pretty crazy, but this is true. They were dowels with gasoline, bound to a stake, and then they were set on fire at nighttime to light up Nero's gardens for his parties. They were sewn into animal skins and then thrown out there into the middle of the, you know, the Colosseum and let lions tear them apart you know, just for fun and entertainment. Christians in the Roman Empire were accused of cannibalism uh, because of communion. They said, you're eating Jesus here, and so that's your, your cannibals. Of uh, immoral practices because of their agape feast. They allow everybody to come to those things. They were accused of trying to destroy the world uh, with their in-view times, as well as they were blamed when Nero set fire on Rome, he blamed it on the Christians. Right? They were accused of atheism. You say, Christians were accused of atheism? Yeah, because they refused to call the emperor God. Right? So they're like, well, you must be an atheist. Add to all of this the verbal insults and the slander they face. Jesus even says they, they called him, you look down at verse 25, they called him Beelzebul. You say, that's a, that's a weird name, I haven't heard that before, what does that mean? It, it, it was one of the gods of Canaan. It's actually one of the gods that they would sacrifice children to. And that's what they called Jesus in this way. Basically, it came to be referred to as Satan. They were, were calling Jesus Satan himself. Um, the word actually translated means, the word literally means Lord of dung. That's what they called Jesus, okay? So not a very nice term of what they called him. And Jesus says, well, if they called me that, get ready. They're going to call you some things too. Verse 38, look what Jesus says down in verse 38. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's, he's calling them to take up a cross. Now, there was nothing, okay, self-indulgent about being a cross-bearer at this time. The disciples and everyone at this time had probably seen Uh, a man take up his cross. They had seen that before in their little villages, right? And they knew what that meant. When someone was taking up a cross in their village and Roman soldiers were following them, they knew exactly what that meant. When he left, he wasn't coming back, okay? Uh, He was on a one-way journey. He was going to go die. That's what they understood by someone taking up a cross and leaving. That's what it meant. Even the word cross was regarded as a expressions so crude in Rome that they, you know, the polite Roman world wouldn't really talk about it very much, even though the crosses were everywhere. And while others tried to deny it or they tried to cover it up, Christians actually proclaimed it, all right, after Jesus' resurrection. The very thing that most people consider too obscene to whisper in private and polite company, Christians were broadcasting it in the streets, They preached the cross of Christ. They boasted in the cross of Christ. They served and gave their lives for the sake of others because of the cross of Christ. Like it was always something that they brought up. And when Jesus calls us to take up a cross and follow him, we understand what that means. It means it's not going to be easy. It means it's not going to be comfortable, easy religious life. This is going to be difficult. N.T. Wright put it this way. He said, look, shaping our world is never for a Christian a matter of going out arrogantly thinking we can just get on with the job reorganizing the world according to some model we have in mind. It's a matter of sharing and bearing the pain and puzzlement of the world so that the crucified love of God in Christ may be brought brought to bear healingly upon the world at exactly that point. Because, as he himself said, following him involves taking up the cross. We should expect, as the New Testament tells us repeatedly, that to build on his foundation will be to find the cross etched into the pattern of our life and work over and over again again. So being a community that is on mission, to see people loved, welcome, served, come to faith in Christ is going to be tough. Everyone who wants a safe, carefree, um, free from danger kind of life should stay away from Jesus, okay? Because that's, that's not what he promises at all. So are you in? Are you willing to follow Jesus together on mission? And lastly, number four, mission requires hope. Alright, so there's a little light shed on the darkness sometimes of this passage. and read it and go like... This is really this is really hard here, but if you look at like down to verse forty to forty two, you find start finding good news. Matter of fact, if you if you look back through the passage, you'll see sprinkled elements of hope and encouragement for us. Why does he do that? Because we need that, right? He talks about uh, here at the end of this passage, giving a giving a child uh, water. It's a pretty easy thing to do, right? It's about the most simplest thing you can do. And it says God, God is taking notice of that. We get the idea in this passage that God is, God is watching over all of this. He is, he's active in all of this. Uh, even, the, even the simplest things of giving water to somebody, right? Book of Hebrews, I love how it puts, it's put. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. If you look back in this passage, back to verse 20, Jesus talks about how God is going to, to be with us and provide for us. And he calls it, um, he says, the spirit of your father. Do you see that there in verse, verse 20? Will speak through us. It's the ninth time that Jesus has brought up the father being, uh, God being the father. That, that was very unique for them to understand that. He's talking about God's fatherly presence, his loving care for us in the midst of chaos. He is a father who is close in pain. He is a father who's near in doubt and draws close during suffering. We're, we are like that sparrow he mentions in verse 29, right? The forgotten sparrow that no one even notices. He's a, it's like even the forgotten sparrow is remembered by God. How much more so are we? When there is pain, when there is heartache and suffering, when there is... Um, brokenness, because people are striving, the church is striving to be a community on mission. It actually, interesting enough, kind of bends the affections of God. Charles Spurgeon was a pastor back in the 1800s in England. I love how he put it this way. He said, Do not mothers always care most for the tiniest child or for that one which is most sick? Do we not spend the greatest care upon that one of our children which has the least use of its limbs? And is not true, is it not true that our weakness holds God's strength and leads him to bow his omnipotence to our rescue? It's like he's like a mother looking after the, the most neediest of children, right? That he bends his heart towards that. And then he adds down in verse 30 how God is interested not only in times of chaos, but in the small details of life, even down to the hairs that are on your head. Even the verb that is used there in verse 30 is talking about the idea that he's continually keeping count um, of every hair. I know mine has become less and less much of a problem for him to count. I get that. But he talks about that. Think about, think about this, ladies. I have ladies and girls in my house, a wife in my house, the hairbrush, you know, and they pull the hairbrush out and the hair you know, comes out of that thing. And I always wonder, like, how do you still have hair after all this that comes out? Um, but think about next time you're pulling the hair out of the hairbrush and go like, wow, God's, he, yep, he counted that one too. Like he knows every detail. If he knows that detail, he knows every detail about my life. I love that. He's continually interested despite the situation my life is in. God is not just a, a fireman that shows up when there's a fire, right? It's like, oh, it's chaos, God's going to show up. It's like, no, God's, God's present in the non-chaotic times, right? He's in, present for all of that. We aren't just his ambassadors, his missionaries. We're also his children. And he cares for us as children. But look uh, down at verse 39 for me. It says in verse 39, whoever loses his life, um, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That's, that's a very interesting phrase. You may have heard that a lot of times and wonder what is he talking about. is he, talking about us losing our lives. You say, what does that mean? People who want to Find or save their life, which is most human beings. <laughs> if they want to find or save their lives in this sense, they believe what they believe is that satisfaction, security is all up to them. It's up to me. The word life here is the Greek word psyche, which we get our word psychology from. It denotes identity, uh, personality, selfhood, what makes you distinct. And Jesus is saying, You want to find yourself, you want to know you. You, you, then don't try to build your life on stuff. Don't try to build your life on stuff in the world or stuff you can do or stuff you can get or people, right? Build it on me. That's what he means by losing your life. Throw it all on me kind of thing. Every culture says if you gain this or you acquire this or you achieve this, then you'll, you'll have a self, right? You'll be valuable, you'll have a purpose. Traditional cultures say you're, you're nobody unless you gain the respect and legacy of family, Individualistic cultures like our own say so you're, you're nobody unless you gain a f- fulfilling career that brings money or reputation or status. Or you're nobody unless people like you, right? Your whole identity is built on how many likes you got on Instagram type of thing or Facebook or whatever. It's all performance-based, all of it, right? Every bit of it's performance-based, it's achievement-based, and it is so tiring. I don't know if you are there this morning, if you're just tired of trying to build your identity on you and try to find you, and you're just constantly like being let down, and nothing's ever enough. It's like when Jesus said, he's the vine and we're the branches. You're not going to find life as a branch disconnected from the vine, right? You see a branch off of a tree laying down the road. It's not live. It's dead, right? Life, identity, satisfaction is found connected to the vine. So this is how, Jesus, this is how radical Jesus' statement is for us. And it's important you understand this about what it means to come to Christ. It's not a matter of saying to God, and maybe you think this, right? It's not a matter of saying to God, you know what, God, you're right, I've been, I'm a failure, I have been immoral. And so now, I know what I need to do. I am now gonna go to church, and I'm gonna become a decent, moral person. And then I'll know I'm a good person because I'm now spiritual, and now I'm okay with you. And people think that's what it means to come to Jesus. Jesus says, basically in this passage, I don't want you to simply shift from one performance narrative lifestyle to another, right? You could do that in the church, you got, I find my identity out there. Okay, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to find it in my job or people or money or fame or whatever. I'm going to find it by being a good person. It's the same narrative, and it's still just as tiring, right? Maybe even more tiring because you've thrown uh, morality on top of it. Jesus is like, you've got to find a whole new way. I want you to lose your old self, your old identity, and base yourself and your identity on me and the gospel. That's what he's saying. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite writers, he said this. He said, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. It's no good trying to, quote, be myself without him. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Look for yourself. You'll find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ. You'll find him. And with him, everything else is thrown in. That's what Jesus is saying. So are you ready to push in, right? Are you ready to surrender all and follow Jesus? Are you willing to lose your life that you might find it? It is frightening. It is scary because, was, my wife and I were talking on the road the other day, like it's scary because grace is scary. You know what grace means? If, if, if you come to faith in Christ, it's all of grace. It means it's all of God. And if it's all of God, you know what that means for you? That means you've got zero leverage. you got none. There's nothing you can say to God. like, well, God, I did this. You did, I, need, I deserve this. You've got none. It's of sheer grace, so I got to do whatever he tells me to do. I have no leverage. I'm not earning anything with God. It's all of grace, all from him. That makes it a very difficult decision. I've told you this story before, and I think this illustrates it well, and I'll end with this. Ronald uh, Pinkerton, okay, he was in a, found himself in a very frightening situation. He was a glider. And uh, somehow, when he was gliding, kind of one of these times, he, he caught a burst of unexpected wind that carried him up. He right, just kind of just start, started soaring into the air, 4,200 feet into the air. And as he got to about 4,200 feet, all of a sudden the air stopped. And he was just left like free, free flying right in the middle of the air. And then he says, he tells his story. He says, suddenly he began to descend quickly. Air began to push him down. And he started going straight nosedive down into the ground. Can you imagine? I've never glided before, but I can imagine how scary this must be. He's heading straight down. He said he was plummeting down to the ground. Here's what he said. It was just kind of his story. He said, "I was falling at an alarming rate. I was trapped in what was called an airborne rip tide. I was going to crash." And then I saw him. He said, "A red-tailed hawk. He was six feet off my right wingtip, fighting the same gust of wind that I was." I looked down. Now three hundred feet from the ground, and I was still falling fast. The trees below seemed like menacing pikes. I looked at the hawk again. He said, "Suddenly, he banked and flew straight downwind." Downwind, he said. If the right air is anywhere, it's upwind. This hawk, he said, was committing suicide. Why is he going straight downwind? He talked about in his, his story, he said that everything he knew about flight told him that the hawk was making a grave mistake. It was completely against everything he understood about flying. And yet, he knew that hawks were masters of the sky and they knew what they were doing and he felt he had no other option, so he did the unthinkable. Here's what he said. He said, I decided to follow the hawk for another 100 feet down. Suddenly, the hawk gained altitude. For a split second, I seemed to be suspended, motionless in space, and then a warm surge of air started pushing the glider upwards. I was stunned. Nothing I knew as a pilot could explain this phenomenon, but it was true. I was rising and went back up, right? Went against all of his instincts, went straight with the wind, straight down, and then banked and came back up, right? It, It put him back up. Pikachu was forced to look past his own instincts, his own experiences, and trust in something other than himself. This is what Jesus called us to here, right? To surrender ourselves to him, trust him with our lives, and remember that we're not alone in that, right? I love how the Gospel of Matthew ends. The Gospel will end this way in chapter 28. He says, go make disciples, right? Baptizing in them, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to deserve all that i commanded you. Get out there, get on mission, and here's the last verse of the, of the Gospel. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I'm with you the whole way. It's scary committing your life to Christ. It is. It's not just checking a box off. It's like, all right, I'm, I'm surrendering myself, my dreams, my ambitions, I'm surrendering. And to do that is scary, but I promise you that it's worth it. <laughs> I promise you. Um, can I suggest, as we go to communion, and if you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to take this. There's like a little cup in front of you. There's bread and there's juice. Jesus told us to do this continually in remembrance of him. And so we do this because we want to remember the cross. We remember what Jesus did because that is our motivation. That's our hope. That's, that's, a, that's our grace in God. And so as, we, as you go to take that bread, we remember the body and blood of Jesus broken and poured out for us. We do in remembrance of him. But before we do that, we traditionally here have a time of quiet. So we can reflect. We can think about the passage. We can talk to God uh, right where we are in our pew Let me suggest two scary yet necessary prayers that maybe you want to pray for yourself and for us as a church. First one's something like this. God, give us supernatural awareness of the condition of the lost and broken around us. God, give us that. Help us to see that. Help us to see as you see, right? That's the first thing to pray. God, give us that vision. Give us that awareness. And the second one is, God, give us unity. Give us unity and sacrificial obedience to the mission of Jesus to make disciples. Give us unity and sacrificial obedience to the mission of Jesus to make disciples. Those are the two prayers. So if you want to pray that prayer, pray it. For yourself and for us, please. As you pray for yourself, pray for all of us because we all need it, right? We all need it. Let me me pray. Father, um, thank you for this opportunity and I want to say publicly before all of us that God, you would give us eyes to see as you see people. Give us an awareness of the hurting and broken and lost around us. Wake us up, God, to that reality. We get so consumed with life and busyness and some of the chaos that's around us as a country even now and election coming up and all the stuff going on and coronavirus stuff. It's just crazy. This year has been crazy. And yet um, we can get lost in all of that and worried about all of that and miss miss the lost and hurting around us because we're kind of at our own wounds, as it were. were. We're hurting ourselves. And so I pray, God, you give us eyes to see those in need. And then unite us, God. Give us purpose. Give us a commitment, sacrificial obedience to the mission to go make disciples as you've called, as you called your disciples to here in chapter 10 and as you've called us today to do so. I pray this in Jesus' name.